Hello everyone and welcome back to my Placadian universe. Today I continue my conversation with Sol Rack uh, about the Harlem Renaissance. Um, this is such an important part of uh, American history and black history. Um, the Harlem Renaissance and the Great Migration, they were just uh, a catalyst for um, a lot of black culture and black identity. Um, and it's very important uh, that we know our history because uh, this moment really helped shape um, the way a lot of black Americans and a lot of black Canadians see themselves today. So uh, yeah, have a listen and I hope you enjoy. A lot of good information to cover. Uh, the Harlem Renaissance is such a vast uh, era. So many different things that occurred. Uh, and there was things that led up to this uh, powerful moment in history mm -hmm. that um, it's just so hard to, to cover it all in a short amount of time. <laughs> Not saying what the podcast just talk about in its entirety, um, even with my tread, it's like I had to ex extend it mm -hmm. because when I think there's an opportunity to wrap it up, I find more things. It's like, okay, <laughs> well, we're going to have to make this a little longer than I anticipated. Absolutely. But it, yeah, but at the end of the day, it's more important to educate the people and, and get people familiarized with their history or our story. Absolutely. So we've been talking about the Harlem Renaissance, and I think uh, it's been sort of focusing on a couple of parts right now. Um, mm -hmm. And I think uh, maybe we can give just a brief uh, overview of the Harlem Renaissance right now, just sort of reminding every per everyone where we started. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as we talked about in earlier episodes, we we focus on the Great Migration, which was the, I guess you would say, almost like a powder keg. Um, that was a result of the oppression that was going on in the South. Uh, prior to the Great Migration, 90% of African-Americans lived in the South. Uh, so there wasn't a large concentration of African-Americans in the Northern cities. Uh, but due to Jim Crow laws and the um, African-Americans being treated as second-class citizens, um, in those southern states, uh, there was a hunger to go elsewhere. Um, there wasn't a, much of an opportunity to have creativity because they were, it was limited, um, only provided when it was a form of entertainment or that level of entertainment was not allowed to be expanded on. Um, in addition to that, you had the opportunities for a better place of employment where they had northern companies that would come down and encourage uh, African-Americans go up north because of the time, at that time, the war was going on and there was a shortage of workers in the factory. And so it was needed to have employment and they, you know, entice African-Americans to go there. So you had so many African-Americans that left the South and went to the North. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of them settled in the Midwest and, and Northern cities and a great amount of those um, African-Americans, because there was about 1.6 million that left from the South that went up North. Um, and those people settled in Harlem mm -hmm. and Harlem was a place which was only three, three square blocks uh, within that area. It was about three square miles. Sorry. There was 175,000 African-Americans in that particular area 
And because all those people existed who were hungry for change and had the opportunity to express themselves and be creative more so than they were in the South, because even though racism existed there, there was more outlets, more opportunities to express that talent and express their abilities without all of the same challenges they had in the South um, that were experienced with Jim Crow laws. Absolutely. It's such a, a great moment in uh, American history as well as African-American history, just about sure. you know, having that catalyst to drive um, you know people out of the South. And it's sort of like the migration mentality of, you know, searching, going into the unknown for the possibility of, you know, mm-hmm. better opportunities. And, you know, it's great that it's created this outlet of creativity and sort of creating a new black identity in America. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really uh, a really important part of uh, our history. Yes, I would yeah. say so. Um, and one of the things that when we talk about an identity, because remember with Jim Crow, there was, you know, there was an effort to dehumanize, degrade or desexualize uh, African-Americans. Um, one of the things, stereotypes that were happening during that time was the mammy. Um, basically, the, the, the woman we see on the pancake box, um, Auntie Mammy, uh, she came from the mammy stereotype. Um, of course, it changed over the years. She got her hair permed and all of that, but that wasn't always the case. <laughs> but <laughs> that wasn't always the case. But with, with, with the historical perspective or the historical aspect of it, um, these stereotypes, you know, the coon and all of these different things, these, these stereotypes permanent, um, were fixtures on postcards. They were fixtures on movies and cartoons and different things like that. So there was such a negative stereotype that was ushered during those times. And even these things were still happening, uh, even during the, the Harlem Renaissance. But the beauty of the Harlem Renaissance is that it gave us that opportunity to create a new identity and to let people know that we, we are intellectuals and that we are intelligent and that we do know how to be classy and sophisticated. And so that it, it helped create a new idea or a new image that we had to overcome due to the negative imagery that was displayed through Jim Crow and other outlets at that time. Absolutely. Um, it's interesting with the, it just makes me laugh every time the Aunt Jemima, yes. uh, you know, in my family growing up, it was not allowed in <laughs> our house. Oh, that's good. Um, so because it, it's, uh, you know, and I, it really made me think about the history behind it, you know, so mm-hmm. like taught to me that, you know, it comes, there's the only bottle in our house will have a picture of a maple leaf on it. because mm-hmm. That's where it came from. And so it's, uh, as I got older, I, you know, I laugh now, but I do understand the powerful meaning behind that is just, mm-hmm. you know, the images that, you know, my family was trying to create for me, um, you know, went down to the simplest things, uh, which is the, you know, I have to admit, I wanted it. I, I wanted it. <laughs> and I didn't understand, you know, why they were, you know, outline out, you know, banning it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I'm grateful uh, that, you know, they put the thought into those kinds of images and, mm-hmm. you know, how to portrayed um, as well. And understanding the history behind uh, the Mammy image as well, which mm-hmm. is, you know, important and how they're trying to craft um, black identities. So mm-hmm. I know we were speaking as well about voices and understanding that and uh, the talent that came out of the mm-hmm. Renaissance. We focused 
a little bit on the writers. Yes. The last time we talked. Yes, we do. Some important people uh, that were getting some messaging out there during this time. Yes, um, we're grateful for, you know, there were more than four, but some of the main four that stand out was Zora Neale Hurston. Um, like we're familiar with her movie that came out where Halle Berry played uh, mm. a main character. Their eyes were watching God, uh, but she did a lot of, uh, she wrote more than 50 short story plays and essays. But ideally, uh, one of the greatest contributions I think Zora Neale Hurston had was the fact that she really brought attention not only to the African-American experience, but also the struggles of African-American woman in her writings. Um, mm -hmm. You know, she, she spoke from that perspective. And again, like I mentioned in the last episode, um, even though she was um, looked upon by the later generation of writers because of the dialect that she used, I think she used realism and just tried to give you the perspective of the person because she spoke in their dialect. Uh, so people can have a general idea how they spoke. So it can kind of put you in that moment. And that's and that was mm -hmm. genius, in my opinion, because I feel mm -hmm. like some of the best writers can put you in that moment. They can make you visualize what's going on, and you can almost feel like you're there, even though you're not there physically, but you are there emotionally and, mm -hmm, and spiritually. Very, yeah, very humanizing, which is important mm -hmm. to you know, uh, the association of a, you know, a human voice and humanizing mm -hmm. African-American people is very important. Yeah. And even as yeah. we talk about Langston Hughes, just to, you know, I'm going to give a brief a snippet of each one just to, so we can definitely get to the musicians today. But um, basically him, he was, his literary art form was called jazz poetry. And I want you to hold on to that idea of jazz poetry, because when we get to, um, one of the musicians, it would make more sense um, what I'm, why, I'm, why I'm saying I want people to hold on to the idea of jazz poetry. But uh, mm -hmm. one of the things Langston Hughes was um, well known for, other than being a poet, a social activist, novelist, playwright, and columnist, he was very influential during the civil rights movement when it was in its infancy. So he was definitely um, on the front lines. And then we have Claude McKay, who was a Jamaican writer and poet. Uh, one of the things about him, he was very vocal and his his poetry challenged, you know, white authority while also celebrating Jamaica culture. And he wasn't afraid to talk about the trial and tribulation of the black man in both Jamaica and Africa. So he was willing to uh, speak, speak the dialect that was needed mm -hmm. at the time because he wanted people to have a better understanding of what was going on by giving the perspectives that he experienced because most of the I would say a good percentage of the writers in the Hall of Renaissance, they focus on the African-American experience, but he was like, okay, well, it's going on here, but it's also mm -hmm. going elsewhere. So he let people know that gave a broader perspective of the struggle. And Ann Spencer, um, I didn't get a chance to talk about her last time, but I didn't want to overlook her this time around. But basically, mm -hmm. she was an American poet, teacher, civil rights activist, um, and she's a librarian as well. But one of the influential thing that she did now she wasn't in harlem per se but she was part of the movement because she was um standing up against the um oppression that was going on and she was also instrumental and in working with uh james william johnson johnson excuse me to develop the chapter of the naacp in lynchburg virginia so she resided in virginia but she still was a inspirational and influential figure during the harlem renaissance Mm -hmm. So that's that's basically a recap of what we talked about. 
in the previous episodes, um, just to bring people up to speed as we get ready to move on. And again, put on your seatbelt because we're going to take you on a journey and you're going to enjoy every moment of it. <laughs> Absolutely. So mm-hmm. I know we're going to talk today about uh, some jazz music and the musicians of the Harlem Renaissance. Absolutely. And, uh, I think we'll, uh, you want to start off by just, you know, giving sort of a, a little overview about uh, some of the identities that were created. And I know we're going to yeah. talk about Jazz poetry, just reminding everyone, remember jazz poetry. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, we're going to touch on it because we're going to bring Langston Hughes up later on as we mm-hmm. go through, as we dissect this particular um, topic. But as we talk about the brand new identity, as we continue to develop our identity, the writers created an identity for us through literary, literary work. But then we also develop our identity as far as music, and that helped cement who we were. And of course, we'll get later on to the to the more the um, I guess you'll say the social activists or social activism uh, as we get ready to talk about some of the contributions that were uh, contributed by intellectuals. Uh, which, in my opinion, uh, music has a form of intellectualism just as far as writing does as well Mm -hmm. but we'll get into the other part as we go along but just want to kind of touch on jazz because that was pretty much the main uh music that was going on in the harlem renaissance but it had a beginning and jazz itself it originated in african-american communities um in new orleans uh around the late 19th early 20th century um and developed from roots roots and blues and ragtime um and had so many different aspects of it, but one of them was swing blue notes and call a response, uh, vocals, polyrhythm, and improvisation. So it was just so many different aspects that contribute to it. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people may not even recognize that jazz itself was like West African cultural and musical expression. Um, it was just an African-American tradition during that time that came from those components, blues, ragtime, as well as European military band, band music. So all of that created this... I would say gumbo, um, for, and no pun intended because it does <laughs> deal with New Orleans, but uh, just to kind of characterize it, I think that would be the best way to do it. Mm-hmm. But one of the reasons that jazz came from New Orleans and then it spread it out elsewhere because there was a popular place uh, called Storyville. And basically, um, Storyville was a place which, where jazz musicians would gather and play. Mm-hmm. Um, it was played in bars and brothels of the red light district around Basin Street. They called it Storyville. That's basically what mm-hmm. it was called. Um, and their dance bands, they were marching bands, which played at lavish funerals called jazz funerals. Um, and so there were so many different things that were going on during that time. But I want, I wish I had more time to kind of touch on that. But I think we want to, I want to move on because I don't want to put a lot of emphasis on it. But those who want to learn more about Storyville, definitely look it up online and you'll see the connection, the direct connection it had with it, uh, with uh, jazz music. But what I want to talk about as we move on is that there were a lot of people that came from Storyville or that were that partaked, part, well, participated rather, uh, in that particular environment. And we mm-hmm. created, it created some of the jazz greats. Um, like beginning in 1914, Creole and African-American musicians played in Bonneville shows, which carried jazz cities in the northern and western part of the United States. But one of the figures 
that really kind of help allow these or push these um, musicians to congregate. One of them being a New Orleans and white band leader named Papa Jack Lane, who integrated blacks and whites in his marching band. And he was known as the father of white jazz. <laughs> Just the, the name itself alone, because many of the top players he employs, such as George Brony, uh, Sharky, Banano, and future members of the original Dixie Land Jazz Band uh, during the 1900s. Uh, jazz was mostly performed in African and mulatto communities the segregation laws so it was separated at that time through the laws but because of this person uh he he jack papa jack lane he integrated everybody and that created an opportunity for it to reach a bigger market uh, but mm -hmm. some of the well-known jazz musicians that was part of storyville one is by the name of but buddy bolden jelly roll morton and another name that you're quite familiar with is Louis Armstrong. So all of them were influenced or touched or had their start in Storyville. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's where they started that. Nice. Yeah. It's nice. Those big names uh, that people recognize, I'm sure Louis Armstrong for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, it's interesting. The mix of like the segregation rules, mm -hmm. but, uh, I always think it's so interesting that the power of like music and creation mm -hmm. and having to sort of expression sort of, you know, went beyond that and sort of, you know, there were, you know, communities that were coming together that people, they, you know, we were uh, creating black people were creating something powerful that people wanted to be a part of. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's sort of, uh, you know, they had this opportunity. So I always think it's, you know, amazing like what you said there's like the intellectual part of music mm. it's amazing it can do uh how it can change uh someone's uh life basically i'm like you know giving them these opportunities yeah exactly um one of the things that you know i want to emphasize again with the jazz it included call a response uh, which is similar to hip-hop um hip-hop there's a call a response like let's say you know when they used to start out back in the 80s they say clap your hands everybody Everybody just clap your hands. And basically you were reaching out to the audience and then the audience reached back out to you. But this was also going on with jazz. And so a lot of things that we see and hip hop started in the in the ghetto. It started in the Bronx and it spread out over a period of time. So it was segregated at first because, you know, black black and brown youth were listening to it and then it, and then other people heard about it, other cultures, and it spread out. Now it's worldwide. And jazz is worldwide. So it's kind of funny. They both have the same, they parallel one another as far as inception. But over a period of time, it became bigger and it just outgrew um, the environment it was in because it spread it elsewhere. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So they had that combination. But um, mm -hmm. as we continue to talk about jazz, we'll just kind of touch on some of the jazz pioneers or influential jazz musicians. Uh, one of them, mm -hmm. you know, he had a movie that came out. A lot of people didn't know about him. His name was um, Joseph Buddy Bolden. Uh, a lot of people, he was American coordinators, I think I said it right, who was recorded by his contemporaries, uh, I mean, regarded, excuse me, by his contemporaries as a key figure in the development of the New Orleans style of ragtime music. It used to be called jazz, J-A-S-S. -S, and then eventually mm -hmm. it became it became known as jazz. But mm -hmm. so he, but he was well known. He they had a movie out about him because there's not much. There, we don't have too many records of him as a musician. But he was very influential with the ragtime music or the um, and influenced the the beginning phases of jazz. Uh, mm -hmm. Another person by the name of Jelly Roll Morton, who also was in Storyville, just like 
um, Joseph Buddy Button or Buddy Bolden, if you want to call him that, was uh, came from Storyville. But jo- Jelly Roll Morton, he was an African Creole pianist. Uh, Jelly Roll Morton began his career in Storyville like the rest, but he started in 1904. He toured with Bobbinville shows to Southern City, Chicago, New York City, and he composed what was known as the Jelly Roll Blues, which became the first jazz mm-hmm. arrangement in print when it was published in 1915. So we got a lot of history there. That's almost, that's over 105 years ago. Just imagine how long ago that was. And being, you know, of African-American descent, uh, being able to accomplish that, that was a phenomenal feat during that time. And then one of the more influential jazz musicians would be Louis Daniel Armstrong or Satchimo, or Pops, as some would call him. (laughs) But he was an American (laughs) trumpeter. Uh, composer, vocalist, and actor who was among the most influential, I believe, in jazz. And a lot of people in the beginning, they just got familiar with him playing an instrument, but he also was a vocalist. Um, he made mm-hmm. the song that some people may be familiar with, It's a Wonderful World, um, which was played in Disney movies and, you know, it's even mm-hmm. popular today. Uh, I don't think you can... Yeah. I don't think you can go through this year without hearing that song at least once. <laughs> I don't think so. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, but the reason I wanted to everybody to hang on to Langston Hughes because during the 1920s, Louis Armstrong brought a huge impact to the Harlem Renaissance within the jazz world. The music he created was imper- it was a critical, excuse me, a critical, credible part of his life during the Harlem Renaissance. But he touched so many people, and one of the people that he touched was Langston Hughes. Um, he 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 admired Louis Armstrong so much. Um, that when he did his writings, he did it with the sound of jazz music in the background. Um, it helped shape mm-hmm. him as a writer. Um, and he created, within the Hughes writings, he created many books which held the central idea of jazz and recognition to Armstrong as one of the most important person to be a part of the newfound love of the culture. So Langston Hughes, as he was writing, now I'm sure he just didn't hear Louis Armstrong music, but he was hearing jazz music in the background, and that's why they kind of put the way he wrote was kind of like a jazz-like style, and that's why they consider mm-hmm. it jazz poetry. So I thought that was rather unique in showing that connection with writing mm-hmm. and jazz at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that was powerful. And, yeah. and then we had Duke Ellington, um, you know, while Swing was reaching the height of his popularity, Duke Ellington spent the late 1920s and 30s developing a, a innovative musical idiom for his orchestra. And he abandoned what was the normal form of swing. And he experimented with orchestra, orchestral style, excuse me, sounds, harmony, and musical forms with complex composition. So basically, put in a nutshell, his music was so innovative that he didn't even want to be called it jazz. He wanted people to he, he wanted people to call it American music, but at times he would impress people to see it beyond category, meaning that you can't put me in a box. That's basically what we were saying. It may it may be exactly. jazz, maybe swing, but you can't put me in the box. You know, I almost feel like back in the day, you probably like you can't put me in the box, baby. Like uh, <laughs> Adam Clayton used to say, that was his word. So so yeah. it was just because I know that was some of the way they would speak back then in that time. But it was just um, so wonderful um, how innovative these people were and they wouldn't allow themselves to be put in a box. 
And I'm just going to mm-hmm. briefly just touch on Count Basie. Uh, basically, Count Basie, I think if we want to put anything to remember him for, he had his own style as well. But one of the things that he was more innovative in was like he used two, the two split tenor saxophones. He helped emphasize the rhythm section, rippling with a big band, using the ranges to broaden their sounds and others. Uh, so he was very influential in that area. He put a spotlight on the on those um on the two split tenor saxophones when they were playing with the music because he gave more emphasis to the rhythm section with his band um and he did it for over he led his group for almost 50 years doing it so he there was some longevity in the game uh being a jazz musician um whereas hip-hop <laughs> even though hip-hop they try to make it seem like it's a young man game which it isn't but the but when you was a jazz musician, there was never a timeline where it's like an expiration date on it. As long as you can get and breathe and get up on that piano and play that instrument, you were good to go. <laughs> Even if you had to use a wheelchair to get there, uh, you you yeah. were good to go. Nobody never said, "Hey, you can't do jazz. You're too old." Although they say that in hip hop, but music is music. It transcends time. I think we have this myth that you can only do music, especially related to hip-hop, if you're a certain age, but music transcends time. Mm. It's not limited to that. And last number touch on exactly. Ella Fitzgerald, um, who was, mm-hmm. I, I think she's one of the greatest singers ever, uh, but she was American mm-hmm. jazz singer, sometimes reter- referred to as the first lady of song, queen of jazz, and Lady Ella. I think that was just a beautiful name to call. I would like to call her Lady yeah. Ella. <laughs> Isn't that a great of title? Course. <laughs> of course. Lady Ella <laughs> at that time. Yes. Because the thing we have to realize, mm-hmm. while these things were going on, Jim Crow law still existed. Um, mm-hmm. You know, um, people were still being segregated. You know, um, black performers couldn't perform in front of white crowds in the South. They had to, you know, they had to have colored sections. Um, black mm-hmm. people couldn't go to the to the you know they had to go to a certain part of the movie theater they couldn't drink from the same fountain as their white counterparts and so all of these things were going mm-hmm. on up north but there were things going on down the south so these achievements that we're talking about are phenomenal considering the challenges that were going on in the united states um they were able to make mm-hmm. these accomplishments but one thing that she was really known for she was noted for her purity of tone impeccable diction mm-hmm phrasing, timing, and intonation. And she had a horn-like improvisational ability, particularly in scat singing. I think she's one of the, her, I think she and, um, and, and, um, Louis Armstrong, his name, his name was slipping Mm -hmm. my mind for a moment, were one of the, one of the best (laughs) scatters around. Cap Calloway was nice too. He was Mm -hmm. good too. And hopefully Mm -hmm. next week I can kind of talk about Cap Calloway, but for the sake of time, we'll leave it with Ella Fitzgerald because I want to kind of show the connection between the jazz music and hip hop. Well, in mm-hmm. just a moment. Sounds good. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's amazing. So if anyone, if you're not familiar with any of these musicians, very influential, I definitely recommend that you, you know, have a listen, find them because uh, you'll see why they uh, are very influential and uh, transcend time and, you know, just the kind of powerful music they were creating at yeah, the time. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, and I'm grateful yeah. for your sharing your platform with us so we can talk about such a uh, deep topic because it's, it's like mm-hmm. I said before, it's such a, 
um, wide mm. field. Uh, you can't you can't limit it to one conversation or two conversations. Um, you can talk about this for months if you really want to dig deep. But we but we like we know we have a small audience, and we know that they're you know they're very intuitive and they don't mind researching material and getting deep with the material that we're mm-hmm. talking about. We're just pretty much just giving you pieces of the puzzle puzzle but we want you to put it together for some reason i keep getting tongue-tied but we're giving you pieces of the puzzle so you can put it together because the best way to learn something although you learn it through us is when you research on your own because you might find something else that might be of interest to you and so we always encourage you to research uh, the material and dig deep and if you have any questions um you know continue to follow um, black Canadian because you can I'm sure you don't mind people reaching out to you if they got questions or following you period Absolutely. you know yeah just reach out reach out to us or you can reach out to Solrak too and yeah if you have any questions for us happy yeah to hear please from you. do we want people to participate we want this to be interactive not where it's just isolated where we're just sharing information you're taking it in research ask mm-hmm. us questions share your insight give us your feedback we want you to be a part of this journey because you don't want to take a journey by yourself. You want people to go along with you. But we'll just talk about a little bit of the hip-hop and jazz music. Um, you know, one of the first persons that were kind of dabbled in jazz was Gil Scott Heron. He was the guy that made The Revolution Would Not Be Televised. Um, but he had some music that dabbled into jazz music. But it started happening really back in the 1980s. Um, in 1985, Jazz Fusion band Cargo, led by Mike Carr, released a single, Jazz Rap volume one but one of the more well-known and he had a a record put out i believe it was um this year uh gangstar which was a group of two people one by the name of guru and another by dj premier and he was really a influential person who included jazz music um when he released his debut single words i manifest he sampled dizzy gillespie we didn't get a chance to talk about dizzy gillespie Gillespie, but he was a well-known jazz musician during that time, and it was a song he made in 1952, Night in Tunisia. I believe I said that name right. Um, and then there was that song that released Talking All That Jazz, which sampled Lonnie Liston Smith. And so there was different hip-hop artists that sampled jazz musicians, which gave a rebirth to jazz because they brought another sound uh, to the hip-hop aura and to the hip-hop vibe. Um, another by the name of Pete yeah. Rock, um, he, he used, he sampled jazz sounds and jazz musicians. Um, he made a he made a record with um, um, C.L. Smooth. And when you listen to that album, you can hear the jazz music in the background. Um, and even um, Nas, who was well-known, his father was a jazz musician. So there was a lot of influence from not only just from the Harlem Renaissance that impacted our generation, but it also uh, were jazz musicians as a whole that I wouldn't use the word creep for lack of a better term, but it just seeped into the hip hop arena and it, and and say, hey, we're here, you know, just like a lot of early rappers sampled James Brown. I know James Brown didn't mm-hmm. like it because, you know, for monetary reasons, but it gave it gave it highlighted who he was and gave people recognition about his music. So even though sampling was upsetting to some of the earlier artists because, you know, monetary reasons, 
it did bring attention to them. It brought attention to them about their music and let the other generation know that, hey, there were people out here who made this good music. That's why we're sampling, because it's good. Exactly. So Yeah. It's flattery, yeah. but yeah. It is. <laughs> of course, monetary reasons, of course, people mm-hmm. want uh, Absolutely. credit. And, you know, we'll just talk yeah. about a couple of more, because we're going to leave room for people to do some research on their own and and like I say, I like to give bite-sized episodes because we want you to chew on it, nibble on it, think about it, and that way you come back hungry for more. But just showing more of the jazz aspect, um, a group by the name of Tribe Called Quest on their album, People Instinctive Travels and Path of Rhythm, um, and their other album, Low in Theory. So they were another group that used jazz and brought about um, different things. And the Low in Theory has become one of hip-hop's most acclaimed albums and it also earned praise from a jazz bassist by the name of Ron Carter, who played double bass on one of the tracks. So they even started incorporating actual jazz musicians in their in their music. De La Soul was another group mm-hmm. that used it. So you, you just have Indigable Planet. Uh, they use it. They use their um, jazz as well. So there were many that use jazz musicians or sample jazz musicians, but that created mm-hmm. that hip-hop jazz sound that some of us enjoy today. But I just want everybody to take away from today is that although jazz started in, just think about the transition or the timeline. It started in New Orleans um, and and it started with, you know, people that were, it come from a, our ancestry where it was a combination of our ancestry mm-hmm. coming from Africa and those things translated into a new art form, which evolved into jazz, which was first called jazz, and then it became jazz. Storyville, which was started, um, it was in the area where there were bars and brothels. Some of the most unlikely places gave opportunity for awesome music. And the people that were there, they took that music and it spread elsewhere. And now, even today, jazz is still influential, whether you're a person that likes jazz by itself or you like a variation of jazz where you have hip hop jazz. Um, so we have to be appreciative from the beginning all the way to what it is today, how it evolved, just like hip hop evolved from the ghetto. Now it's all the way is, is worldwide. And so we just have to enjoy those mm-hmm. parallels. Absolutely. Absolutely. Very nice. Nice. Yeah. So I think next time we're going to talk a little bit more about some uh, musicians and focus maybe on blues. Absolutely, a bit. there are so many people to talk about that we we want to dig into. But if you have an opportunity, go ahead and start. I'm speaking to the audience, of course. Go ahead and study in advance the topics um, about understanding the blues that went on during the Harlem Renaissance period, because we're gonna dive. We're gonna dive deep. Um, be prepared to put your seatbelt on again, because we're gonna take you on a journey. And we thank you for tuning in today. Follow. Uh, Black Canadian online, uh, DM her, follow me at Soul Rack Music, DM me if need, need be. And at the end of the day, we thank you for listening to the podcast. Yes. Thank you so much, everyone. And Absolutely. thank you, Soul Rack. Thank you. <laughs>